My favorite way to unwind and dive into something more fun is June's Journey. The game lets me channel my inner detective and unlock compelling stories, strong female characters, and a mystery I want to solve. If you like true crime podcasts, it's the perfect game to play along while you listen. The Hidden Object Mystery Game will put your detective skills to the test in the roaring 1920s. You play as June Parker as she tries to solve her sister's murder and along the way uncovers family secrets. Chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Mystery, danger, romance all await you if you download the game now. I'm on chapter four and wondering how these clues will help me crack the case of who did it and why. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. If you love Snapped, Women Who Murder, you're going to love listening to true crime or mystery titles on Audible. The audio title I'm diving into again is one of my favorites to revisit, Mindhunter by John Douglas and Mark Ulshaker. Even if you think you know the details of the cases, former FBI unit chief John Douglas took on from documentaries or the scripted show, the audio title goes above and beyond in bringing you along with him in his career, trying to catch serial killers and serial perpetrators. He used psychological profiling to dive into the minds of notorious criminals. The title includes his hunt for a killer in Alaska, the Green River Killer, and so much more. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. It is the home of storytelling after all. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. That's audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. The tranquility of a lakefront community is shattered when a young son finds his father murdered. For someone to stab somebody that many times, they're not normal. It was definitely a crime of passion. As the case heats up, accusations fly. She said, I was being the good mother. She was like a little goody two-shoes, too good to be true. She believed he may have uh, mob or mafia ties and that he might have something to do with murder. Investigators begin a twisted journey to uncover the truth. I think suspicions and greed kind of became infectious. They wanted to find a way to pin something on me. They basically walled off communication. They no longer were willing to cooperate with police. When the cards fall into place, they will reveal a vicious conspiracy crafted by a deadly duo. It was a long planned event. That was not something spur of the moment. They went into the apartment. He described them, I think, as uh, home runs. The detective asked him what type of person would do this to somebody, and he just put his head down and said, you're looking at him. August 6th, 1994. It's a picture-perfect Saturday in Lake Orion, Michigan, a historic village 40 miles north of Detroit. Not a place that you really hear much about in the newspaper because not a lot of bad stuff happens there. Around 10.30 a.m., the peacefulness of this community is shattered when a handyman notices something alarming in the parking lot of a local apartment complex. This person was out in the parking lot screaming and crying when it, somebody that had come to the apartment complex to do some work had arrived, had talked to him briefly. 
The young man identifies himself as 16-year-old Kevin Boyd Jr. and says his father is in desperate need of help. Kevin told this individual that his dad was dead inside of an apartment. This individual went inside of the apartment, turned on the lights, and saw Kevin Sr. basically lying in a pool of blood. He was on the living room floor. He had a pillow over his head, blood everywhere. I was told there was a homicide in Lake Lorien and that the police chief uh, at the time was requesting our assistance with the investigation. I responded to the scene. I saw a uh, male subject just inside the door. There were multiple stab wounds uh, to the victim. Um, it was clear that there was not a forced entry into the apartment. Uh, and it was also clear that the victim suffered from severe head trauma. The level of assault, the level of viciousness of the attack is an important piece of evidence uh, that would indicate the type of crime this possibly could be. With the number of wounds we saw there, it appeared it was a, definitely a crime of uh, violence and passion. So that led us to believe that whoever did this knew the victim. Investigators immediately confirm their victim is 42-year-old Kevin Boyd. Everyone knew Kevin. Kevin was a businessman in Lake Orion. He had lived in Lake Orion most of his life, and uh, he ran a Lake Orion tool rental. He had a uh, very open personality, very likable individual, and all-around kind of nice guy. Born on September 27, 1951, Kevin Boyd grew up a half hour from Lake Orion in the town of Berkeley, Michigan, the middle of seven kids. There were four half-sisters, one sister, one brother, and me. He was a little redhead with freckles. He had the personality to match. Kevin was a happy-go-lucky person. I mean, he was, he always had a smile on his face, and he, he was always joking. In the early 70s, Kevin met a woman who would change his life, Lynn Fleury. He met her at a bar and started dating. She lived in a very nice area, but she was quiet compared to my brother. She was more of a free spirit, musician, played in a band. In 1975, after two years of dating, the couple tied the knot. It was at her parents' house, and then they rented a hall for the reception. He seemed happy. Kevin was happier still when their son, Kevin Jr., was born two years later. He was a sweet little boy. Again, another redhead with freckles. To provide for his family, Kevin started a tool rental company. There was a lot of new construction development going on, and anybody in town that needed something, uh, you could rent it from Lake Orion Tool Rental. I started working for him when I was 12. We could make everybody laugh. Everybody had a nickname. It was a steady business. We were outgrowing the location we were in. That's how busy we were. Despite Kevin Sr.'s flourishing rental business, his marriage began to fracture. Lynn secretly struggled with alcoholism. She admitted herself to a rehab center, and it seems like when she got out of there, everything fell apart. 
Around Christmas of 1988, Lynn dropped a bombshell. She was leaving Kevin for another woman. Kevin was totally shocked, totally shocked. I think he was kind of embarrassed. I mean, how do you be married to somebody that long and all of a sudden, you know? The relationship was over, they were separated. He just gave her the house, gave her everything, and he went and rented an apartment. He wouldn't sit there and mutter over everything. He was done with it. I mean, he just wanted to live his life. Though Lynn had primary custody of their son, Kevin Sr. and Kevin Jr. remained close. And while Lynn forged ahead with her girlfriend, Kevin started seeing a fellow divorcee named Judy Kamensky. She was like a little goody two-shoes, too good to be true. She had a bubbly personality, really bubbly. You could see Kevin becoming more happier and not depressed about what happened with him and Lynn. By the early 1990s, both Kevin and Lynn seemed to have found happiness. Still, Kevin Jr. struggled. The older he got, the more, uh, how can I say it? I'm a badass attitude. He was always seemed to be angry at something. You know, he always just seemed to kind of have a little chip on his shoulder. He had a hard time with school. And then I would say, like, his smoking and drinking would probably be the biggest issues. Kevin Jr. had damaged two cars so far while he was 16, and his father was in the process of buying him another car. He got in and out of like four or five schools because he kept getting kicked out of schools. Everything was an excuse to him. Nothing was his fault. Kevin would just shake his head and say, you ain't gonna believe this one. You know, and the kid did it again. He got thrown out of school. After his latest expulsion, both Lynn and Kevin Sr. agreed that Kevin Jr. might do better under his father's roof. Kevin Sr. had a very strong work ethic, and uh, Kevin Sr. Uh, had expectations for his son, and uh, he expected him to perform the same way. I think the father's just trying to be a good dad to kind of rein him in a bit. But right before his junior year of high school, all hope for Kevin Jr.'s future seems shattered when he finds his father deceased on August 6, 1994. This victim was stabbed multiple times. There were multiple locations on the body, and there was severe blunt force trauma to the head. When investigators arrive, they work quickly to process the scene. The condition of the body and the placement of the body indicated that he had fallen asleep in a recliner chair and was assaulted. As officers move into the rest of the apartment, uh, they began to see that uh, there were sections of the apartment that were ransacked, uh, that there was the appearance that the items were stolen and searched for. In addition, it was discovered that the victim's wallet was not found at the scene. There were some things that investigators saw were missing as well, like the answering machine, because there was a void spot where that would have been. It had the appearance of a robbery, even though there was no forced entry. What we don't know is, did he leave the door unlocked? Uh, was he expecting somebody? Uh, could have been a delivery, could have been a pizza, could have been some stranger that had access to his home via permission. Coming up. 
the search for answers takes a sinister turn. The people that did this, investigators knew from the scene, went there with a purpose, and that purpose was to kill him. At the autopsy, it was learned that Kevin had been struck by a metal object that actually crushed his uh, skull in. And detectives don't have to look far for their first suspect. Kevin Jr., he was probably the one we wanted to speak to the most. In Lake Orion, Michigan, where violent crimes are few and far between, investigators struggle to make sense of 42-year-old Kevin Boyd's savage murder. Investigators, after they arrived on the scene and they were able to make um, some obvious notations of the type of uh, assault that occurred, as they moved through the apartment, uh, there was indications that items had been tossed about, a typical ransack, uh, for a, a robbery-type crime. After processing the scene, investigators send Kevin's body to the coroner's office for an autopsy. While officers await the results, they turn their attention to the person who found Kevin, his son, Kevin Jr. Kevin Jr., he was probably the one we wanted to speak to the most because, because he lived with his father and the way he acted there at the scene. Kevin Jr., was extremely distraught and emotional as any child would be finding their parents or the father's body. They removed Kevin Jr. from the scene. Investigators immediately escort Kevin back to the station for questioning. When investigators ask if he'd heard anything suspicious leading up to the murder, Kevin claims to have not been home. Kevin Jr. had spent the night uh, with his girlfriend uh, watching movies uh, in Lapeer, Michigan, about 25 minutes away from Lake Orion. Then he got up the next morning, and uh, that's when he started looking for his dad, probably around 9 o'clock in the morning. Tried calling his dad, couldn't get a hold of him, got concerned, drove to his business, wanted to know if his dad was there, and he basically told investigators when he got there, he went inside and saw immediately that his dad was dead. Obviously still shaken, the 16-year-old then provides investigators with what could be an important clue. He began to paint a possible motive for the investigator. He instructed the officer that his father had several guns uh, in his apartment and uh, some other items of value, and that perhaps or possibly that was the motive for this crime. Kevin Sr. had recently purchased a 44 Magnum um, it had like a, an eight-inch barrel on it. It had a laser scope on it. It was missing along with some rifles and another handgun. Also, there was some coins that were taken. They were mint um, collector's coins. You know, they were polished. They were, they were in seals. As for who could have committed this crime, Kevin Jr. has no idea. Investigators were trying to figure out who would uh, attack and take his father's life and what would be the motive. Kevin Jr., he had stated that he was not responsible and had no knowledge. Shortly after wrapping up their interview with Kevin Jr., police receive an unexpected phone call from a man named Jeff Jerome. He was a musician, and the night before, he was playing uh, at a bar that was uh, about five miles south of the apartment complex where Kevin Sr. lived. 
He got off at about 3 a.m. He went out to his pickup truck and noticed that there was a wallet uh, in the pickup truck. And there was an answering machine in the pickup truck. And he went through the wallet, was able to find a business card of this Kevin Boyd. Jeff can't explain how a homicide victim's belongings ended up in the back of his truck. Multiple people saw him there, so there was never any considerate, serious consideration that he was a suspect. He was very uh, insistent with the investigators that the wallet and the answering uh, machine was not in the back of his truck when he parked that at the bar. So that helped adjust uh, or kind of clarify the time of death that this incident could have occurred. Investigators put Kevin's death between 11 p.m. when their witness arrived at the bar and 3 a.m. when he left. When detectives obtain the wallet, they're surprised to find cash inside, along with several credit cards. If unknown assailants were coming into the home and robbing, and they're taking guns and other items of value, why would they not take the cash? The answering machine is also a mystery. When they had recovered the answering machine um, from the individual at the bar, the micro cassettes were not in it. So that was an interesting clue as did someone call ahead? Did he have an appointment? Uh, was this a business deal gone bad? What was on that tape that could indicate who the killers are? With the new potential timeline provided by Mr. Jerome in hand, detectives circle their attention back to Kevin Jr. and his alibi. Investigators talked to the girlfriend and her mother. They pretty much said that she couldn't have gone anywhere. The trailer has thin walls. And the mother, she came out, I think, like 4, 35 o'clock in the morning, and he was there. She confirmed that he was there all night. Investigators hope the results from the autopsy can help move the case forward. It took a long time to do because of how brutal the murder was. There were four to five blunt force trauma injuries to the head. At the autopsy, it was learned that Kevin had been struck by a, a hard object, a metal object that actually crushed his uh, skull in. There was a paint transfer from an object that was used to hit him in the head where they hit him so hard they split his skin open and there was black paint that was found embedded in his skull so that let investigators know we're dealing with a black object an elongated object such as a baseball bat something that would be able to generate that type of force with that type of paint transfer there was also approximately 21 stab wounds to his body um, they were all over the place he had one to his face he had multiple in his stomach multiple in his back for someone to stab somebody that many times, they're not, they're not normal anyways. I mean, even to stab a person once is not normal. The autopsy determined that this was a knife used that was approximately five inches in length. There were also indications that some of the stab wounds were post-mortem. The combination of the blunt force trauma to the head and the stab wounds were the cause of death. This is not what you would expect if somebody saw an attack coming. Investigators thought there were two people to inflict that many wounds, that type. When somebody sees a knife attack coming or a baseball bat attack coming, they get into a defensive posture. So you're gonna find deep cuts on their hands, deep cuts on their arms. 
and he had there were two small cuts on his right hand and a couple of minor bruises in his wrist area. I mean, I would say that the, if the initial blow was to the skull, he didn't have the chance to really react. He got up, briefly tried to defend himself, but could not overcome the two people that just started stabbing him and continued to beat him. This crime was so brutal that it was apparent to the investigators right off the bat, this is somebody that knew him that tried making this look like it was a robbery. The people that did this, investigators knew from the scene, went there with a purpose, and that purpose was to kill him. Coming up, suspicious actions call into question the woman closest to Kevin Boyd. The day after he was murdered, she was on her way to Canada. The timing obviously raised suspicions in people. And a risky side hustle leaves investigators wondering if Kevin's killer was out for revenge. The guys would go and show up and basically empty the apartment. It could have been a disgruntled person that was evicted. Hey, staff listeners, it's Stephanie Gamolka with Oxygen True Crime. Want to know what's number one on our wish list? A Dateline premium subscription. Get yourself or a loved one the gift of a Dateline podcast subscription for ad-free episodes, bonus content, and early access. Start listening by heading to Apple Podcasts or go to apple.co slash Dateline Premium. That's apple.co slash Dateline Premium. If you're like me and can still recognize Mr. Brightside from the first note and then can't resist screaming it at the top of your lungs, you're a millennial. And if you're a millennial, it's time to add Clarins Multi-Active Cream to your daily routine. Rooted in nature and innovated with science, Clarins has a long legacy of creating industry-first, plant-forward products. Using a skin charger complex made of 2% niacinamide and Sea Holly Bio Extract, Clarins Multi-Active Cream has been clinically proven to target the first visible signs of aging by smoothing lines and wrinkles, refining pores, evening tone and texture, and strengthening the skin's moisture barrier. While multi-active cream can't bring back the golden age of boy bands, it can de-stress your skin. Clarins Multi-Active Cream is available online now. Go to clarins.com slash truecrime and get multi-active day and night cream for 10% off, a free welcome gift, plus free shipping on your first order. That's C-L-A-R-I-N-S dot com slash truecrime with promo code truecrime. Clarence.com slash truecrime with promo code truecrime. So you keep trying to get in shape and it keeps not working. I'm Lacey Green, a super trainer with body. That's B-O-D-I dot com. And I've got a story you have to hear. I have a client who came to me because she was really frustrated that every gym or trainer she tried made her feel bad because she was a beginner. She had tried it all and she just felt humiliated. And that's when we started working together and I took her through my three-week program called For Beginners Only. Once she realized that she wasn't the problem and that she just needed the right program, she started to get results. And now she's completely unstoppable and feeling so strong and confident. And I can do the same for you. On the Body app, subscribers lose five to 10 pounds consistently in their first month. And I bet you will too. 
In fact, CNN underscore just named Body best fitness app. And right now, Body has a special introductory offer. The next 500 new users who sign up for a year of Body save 72%. That's just 33 cents a day. All you have to do is go to Body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. In the days after the murder of Kevin Boyd Sr., investigators theorized that the popular businessman was the victim of a targeted hit and not a robbery gone wrong. We were going back through his associates. We're trying to figure out what happened that night, who he had contact with. So during the investigation, everybody is going to be looked at. Everybody's going to be interviewed. Detectives discover that Kevin had a controversial side business. Kevin Sr. had a business, and they did the uh, manual work as far as doing evictions. Like He had a team that would go in and, and uh, carry out you know, the, the possessions and stuff like that. Basically, landlords would call them in the middle of the night. The guys would go and show up and basically empty the apartment. It could have been a disgruntled person that was evicted. Multiple names came up and multiple names were obvious. And some of those names were, we don't think this person had something to do with it, but we have to talk to them to see. We're following up leads. I mean, a lot of times we get a lead, we follow it up and it just kind of go nowhere. Investigators also have to rule out suspects closest to home, starting with Kevin's ex-wife, Lynn. She seemed a little upset, concerned. I mean, this was her former spouse, and she knew that her, her son was quite upset. Lynn swears to have no knowledge of her ex-husband's murder. According to Lynn, she and Kevin were amicable for the sake of their son, but rarely spoke about anything outside of parenting duties. Her alibi was her girlfriend. Um, she was living with an uh, individual by the name of Julie Grain. They had gone and rented some movies. She's very adamant, repeatedly told us that no, they were together all night, she never left the house. And Julie Grain backed that alibi up. Investigators ask Lynn if she can think of anyone who might want her ex-husband dead. Lynn immediately suggests Don Lucarelli, Kevin's right-hand man. She had given the name of Don as stating that he may have uh, mob or mafia ties and that she believed that he might have something to do with murder. Lynn also points a finger at Kevin's girlfriend, Judy Kaminsky. The day after he was murdered, she was on her way to Canada. She'd gone with her son to Canada for the weekend. The timing obviously raised suspicions in people. Obviously, she was interviewed. She gave a completely logical explanation as to what the trip was about. She went to Canada before she found out that he was dead. It was a long planned event, and it was ruled out that that was not something spur of the moment. But it's not just the ill-timed travel that raises eyebrows. It was later discovered that uh, she had a life insurance policy on Kevin Sr and uh, Judy was a beneficiary. That angle was investigated. Um, it was determined that they jointly had decided to take that out because Judy was a business partner uh, as well. And the purpose of that was to make sure that if one of them were to die or pass away, uh, the other one would have the funds to run the business. With Kevin Sr.'s long-term girlfriend and business partner taken off the suspect list, 
Kevin's loved ones gather to say goodbye on August 9th, 1994. It was odd because the police were there sitting outside the funeral home. Investigators keep a close eye on one attendee in particular, Don Lugarelli. He was viewed as somebody that they should look at because he had worked for the business. Um, there were some discussions about him buying the, one of the businesses from Kevin. Obviously, we had to have Don come in. He had explained, you know, his alibi and everything. They asked me if I'd come down. I said, I have no problem. So I went down and took the polygraph test. The one question that really stuck to me is like, did you murder Kevin Boyd or do you have any knowledge of who murdered Kevin Boyd? You know, and they asked quite a few questions. It was about a half hour procedure. He passed it with flying colors. After they asked him, you know, you know Kevin, you know him as well as anybody. You know, if you had any suspects, you know, who should we be looking at? And Lynn immediately left his mouth. Right after the funeral, Lynn never came up there. Little Kevin never came up there to the burial site to find out the next day. The reason they didn't go to the burial site is they're too busy at the courthouse getting paper rights to take over Lake Orion Rental. Judy was a beneficiary of the life insurance policy on Kevin Sr. But Kevin was the beneficiary of the business. And now that Lynn was his uh, guardian, she would be in charge of the business and taking care of stuff like that. Kevin was convinced his dad had a lot of money and he's going to run the business with his mother and have all kinds of money and life would be good. Later, I went to lunch with little Kevin. The only thing he would say was, you know, I don't know what's going on. All I know is I got to run $2 million businesses now. And, you know, like, that's all he cared about. Like, didn't even say anything about his dad. Don tells detectives he fears Lynn is destroying everything Kevin worked so hard to build. When I wasn't there, I would drive by and I could see her there running the place. Her and Julie, little Kevin. I know they sold an excavator to somebody up in Lapeer for half of what it was worth just to get cash. Don became very concerned because there were some anomalies in the finances. And one of the things that they had identified was that money was disappeared out of the safe. According to Don, only two people had access to that safe, him and Kevin Boyd Sr. When I first started working for Kevin, he pulled a combination out of his wallet, put it down, and he wrote right down the same combination. On a piece of paper, he gave it to me. He said, stick this in your wallet behind something so you have it in case you ever forget the combination. He goes, trust me. So I knew the combination was always in his wallet. Don had noticed one day that I believe it was Lynn came in and just opened the safe right up. And he was like, how did she do that? Because she doesn't have the code. Kevin was very private. He was very um, secure conscious. And all of a sudden, after he died, Lynn was moving in to try and take that business over and was going into that safe repeatedly. And the only way she could have gotten that combination was if she had gotten a hold of that piece of paper with the combination from his wallet. Detectives head to the police evidence room for a closer look. We were aware that the combination it was in Kevin's wallet, and, and uh, either myself or one of the investigators went through the wallet. That piece of paper was missing. It was literally the only thing missing out of the wallet. 
So clearly whoever had taken the wallet had taken the combination. Coming up, a shocking suspect comes forward. She contacted authorities and stated that she wanted to recant her alibi and she had additional information. You lie about stuff like that because you're covering stuff up. You're trying to help somebody. Weeks after 42-year-old businessman Kevin Boyd was slaughtered in his living room, investigators strongly suspect that his 41-year-old ex-wife, Lynn Boyd, may be getting away with murder. When investigators wanted to go back and, and talk to her, it was basically, I'm not talking to you, I've got a lawyer, you're not talking to my son anymore either. And they basically walled off communication. They no longer were willing to cooperate with police. Weeks turn into months without any movement in the case. I knew they were doing everything they possibly could. Um, the detectives kept constant contact with me. Finally, on November 23rd, 1994, three months since the brutal murder of Kevin Boyd, a lawyer representing Lynn's girlfriend, Julie Grain, requests a meeting with law enforcement. At that point, I think suspicions and greed kind of became infectious between Julie Grain, Lynn Boyd, and Kevin Jr., and there were infighting. And during one of these hostile confrontations between Julie and Lynn, um, Julie then contacted authorities and stated that she wanted to recant her alibi and she had additional information. Detectives immediately head to Julie's attorney's office to speak with her. Julie Grain basically said that she had lied and that Lynn had in fact left her house the night of the murder and was gone for several hours between approximately 10 at night to three in the morning. Julie swears she only made up the story because she believed Lynn was innocent. Lynn had told her that her son had, was having some problems and that she met him up in the Lake Orion area at a Burger King. But if the police had found out about that, it would look really bad. So she asked Julie to lie for her. And so she went along with it and, and gave her the alibi. But now, nearly four months later, Julie claims Lynn was involved in the murder. She says late October, Lynn admitted to her that she had killed Kevin. And now Julie's concerned because she was an alibi that she was going to get involved. She's going to be charged also. She had brought some coins um, with her that she had found at her house. And they were coins that were taken from Kevin Sr.'s apartment the night he was murdered. She did submit to a polygraph examination, and she was found to be truthful. Detectives decide not to charge Julie with making false statements to authorities and begin putting together their case against Lynn. Then, a week later, the mother of Kevin Jr.'s girlfriend calls the station with some troubling information. Her son-in-law is concerned because Kevin had given him a gun to get rid of in early October. He says, you may want to talk to him. So needs to say, myself and another investigator went up to uh, Lapeer and spoke with him. The man's name is Gary Wilson, and he's ready to come clean. 
He told the police, Kevin asked me to get rid of the 44, so I sold it to a drug dealer up in Flint. Mr. Wilson agreed to go with us to try to recover the, the gun in Flint. Ultimately, after a number of hours, the gun turned up in the backyard of a house. There was no doubt, no doubt, that that was the gun that had been stolen from his dad's apartment. Investigators don't charge Gary Wilson with any crime and turn their attention back to Kevin's girlfriend and alibi, Andrea Lenton. She took a polygraph, did not do well on it, and ended up admitting that her and Kevin had gone to the Burger King at approximately 11 o'clock at night and had met up with Lynn, and that Kevin and Lynn had gone out into the car and talked. You lie about stuff like that because you're covering stuff up. You're trying to help somebody. So right there, they knew Kevin was involved. But the case is about to take an even more dramatic turn. As they were working on that angle, they received a phone call at the Oakland County Sheriff's Department, and it was Lynn telling them she couldn't take it anymore and to come and get her because she was responsible for killing her husband. I think at some point, Lynn determined that there was enough evidence and information that she's going to be caught. For so many months now, she had been lying to us. So what the question is going to be, well, when was she lying now or was she lying then? After four months of claiming her innocence, Lynn is now in police custody and confesses to killing Kevin Sr., insisting that Julie Grain masterminded the whole thing. Julie was kind of urging you to do it. mentioned that she had used the bat and that Julie had used the knife. But during this, her statement, on several occasions, she referred to Julie as a he. So that kind of drew our attention. To detectives, it seems Lynn just revealed the true identity of her co-conspirator, her own son. We took Kevin into custody because we feel we had, at this time, based on the circumstantial evidence that he was involved. In the beginning, he was argumentative. You guys got the wrong guy. What are you guys doing here? You guys are wrong. And about, it's every, it's Julie, it's Julie, it's Julie. I'm going to jail no matter what. If you guys do well, I'm not. Now, wait a minute. But it's true, you know what it is. Okay, but now did you, when you talked to your mom today, did you ask her how it happened, who she was with, or what happened? She said that she was there, but she didn't kill him. She said that Julie killed him. She chose to believe in that. I'll take a polygraph, it doesn't matter to me. Then one of the detectives pulled out the gun with the scope, and Kevin just got deflated. And the detectives looked at him and he goes, Kevin, stop, we know. The detective asked him what type of person would do this to somebody like your father. And he just put his head down and said, you're looking at him. I said, whoa, whoa, wait a second here. Kevin, you're telling me you, you killed your dad? She was, yeah. So then he, he gave it all up. 
Lynn and Kevin themselves thought of this, um, thought how to do it, and together built up an anger towards him. So they decided to do this. They drove to the apartment. They waited till he fell asleep. They went inside of the apartment. His mother took a couple of real hard swings at his dad's head. And he described him, I think, as uh, home runs. And to the surprise of both of them, he got on his feet. So they kind of panicked. And Lynn continued to hit him in the head with the bat. When Kevin was asked, what did you do at that point? He said something to the effect of, I just went crazy with the knife. He admitted that he just started stabbing his dad over and over and over again. It's the first time in the whole investigation I saw him cry. And the, the, the real tears, I mean, he wasn't putting on a show. I mean, I could tell that this was a, it was a classic confession. As for motive, Kevin Jr. claims that his dad was abusive and controlling. But investigators contend there's far more to the story. When all of the evidence and all of the interviews uh, are compiled, um, it was clear to the investigators Lynn had manipulated Kevin Jr. Uh, that the father was evil and that he was a bad person and uh, that if he were to be killed, their lives could be much better and safer. Kevin Jr., I think, manipulated his mom for attention. There was one incident where he had some bruising to his face and he told his mom that he had gotten into a fight uh, with his father. It wasn't true, but it built up a rage in Lynn. I mean, she was telling people, he beat him up, he beat him up. I'm gonna kill him, I'm gonna kill him. This, this guy's evil. Coming up, detectives uncover the final piece to the puzzle. This T-shirt fell out and they opened the T-shirt and there was a knife in there. And a mother turns on her son. She said, I was being a good mother and I initially took the fall for him, but that's not true. I wasn't there. I had nothing to do with it. In the winter of 1994, Lynn and Kevin Boyd Jr. separately confessed to participating in the murder of Lynn's ex-husband and Kevin's father, Kevin Boyd Sr but they are telling two very different stories of the same crime. You know, and it, right off the bat, they weren't able to get their story straight. I didn't believe a word they said. Lynn said different things in the confession from Kevin. You really don't know what to believe. And both of the individuals at that point then were incarcerated pending trial. In May of 1995, nine months after the murder, there's a stunning development. Now you have a business that no one owns, right? The people that, uh, the heir parents are all incarcerated and charged with the murder. So uh, the building was being sold. The last item that was sold was a compressor, and as they're moving it, this T-shirt fell out. And they opened the T-shirt, and it, there was a knife in there. Kevin had these shirts made up for all the guys on evictions, and he never left little Kevin out either. So the shirt, the knife was wrapped up and was a medium, and he only bought a medium shirt for little Kevin. 
They couldn't find any blood uh, or prints or anything like that. I did speak with the uh, medical examiner. He says this knife is consistent with what could have been used. It's not a smoking gun, but it may be as close as the prosecution is going to get. Mother and son are tried separately the following year. In complete disregard of their earlier confessions, both now claim innocence. Lynn tried to put it on Kevin, and Kevin tried to put it on Julie during the trial itself. At both trials, the prosecution argues Lynn Boyd was motivated by greed and a long-standing hatred of her ex-husband. Lynn's alimony was running out, and she figures that if, and because Kevin is a juvenile right now, had she waited three weeks, it might have been different at the time, but uh, uh, that way she'd be his guardian and she could run the business and uh, everything would work out okay. Lynn didn't take the stand at her trial, but the defense at her trial, clearly from the questioning and from the argument, was to blame her son. My son did this and I was being the good mother and I initially took the fall for him. Um, but that's not true. I wasn't there. I had nothing to do with it. It was my son that did it. Kevin went from, I was in the trailer park the whole night with my girlfriend, I never left, to I was there, I had the knife, this is what I did, this is what I took, um, to then later on reverting back to I gave him the keys, but I wasn't there, it was my mom and Julie. They whipsawed back and forth, they still tried to bring Julie into it, but when you play a taped interview of a uh, suspect confessing to a crime, that has a lot of weight with the jury. Um, and in this case, the taped interviews of both Lynn Boyd and Kevin Jr. were very damning. Both mother and son are found guilty. And with now 18-year-old Kevin tried as an adult, both are sentenced to life without parole. Yeah, I believe Kevin acted on his own tuitions at the end of the day. Yet, yeah, did she put in his head, like, oh, you'll be rich and have all this money and you won't have to deal with your dad anymore? Sure, she probably did say that. But do I buy that as an excuse? I don't. I wanted them to know that they killed somebody that loved them dearly. He did. Probably even after the divorce, I think he still loved her, you know. Almost 30 years after the murder, Lynn Boyd remains behind bars. But Kevin Jr. had a change of fate thanks to a 2012 ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court. There was a recent Supreme Court ruling on uh, juvenile offenders that were sentenced as an adult uh, for life or long sentences. Uh, as a result of that Supreme Court ruling, Kevin Jr.'s case was brought before the court he was resentenced. The judge basically vacated the life without parole sentence and sentenced him to a minimum of 25 years in prison, which he had basically already served, and he was paroled in January of this year. I don't believe he should be free. I'm not going to wish him harm, but I can't welcome him in with open arms right now. It's just sad. I mean, it's very sad, because the kid doesn't understand how much his dad really loved him. Dad would have done anything for that boy. He just couldn't see it. 
Lynn Boyd is serving her life sentence at the Women's Huron Valley Correctional Facility in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Kevin Boyd Jr. earned his high school equivalency diploma behind bars. In 2017, he told a reporter, I am not even a reflection of who I used to be. He has been out of prison since January of 2020. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.